We have the privilege today of allowing our children to remain in service with us. Gives our wonderful children's ministries team an opportunity to worship together with us on this communion Sunday as well. And uh, so any kids that are interested, there are some busy bags. They're coming around for you even as we speak. So kids, welcome. It's good to have you with us today. Any kids out there? They're looking at me like, what do you want me to say? Yeah, we're good. It's all good. What a wonderful time of worship, amen? It's good. It's good to be together with you this morning. I'd like to start today by sharing with you a quote. Um, Not from Jesus, not from the Bible, um, but some of you will know uh, a person by the name of Gandhi. He uh, said this at one point. He said, speak only if it improves upon the silence. stand before you today humbled by those words. Amen? I will endeavor to improve upon what could be just simply silence from me this morning. Gandhi would go on to say these words. He would say, Experience has taught me that silence is a part of the spiritual discipline of a votary of truth. Proneness to exaggerate, to suppress or modify the truth, wittingly or unwittingly, is a natural weakness of man, and silence is necessary in order to surmount it. A man of few words will rarely be thoughtless in his speech. He will measure every word. We find so many people impatient to talk. There is no chairman of a meeting who is not pestered with notes for permission to speak. And whenever the permission is given, the speaker generally exceeds the time limit asks for more time, and keeps on talking without permission. All this talking can hardly be said to be of any benefit to the world. It is so much a waste of time. Those are the words of Gandhi in his own experience. He echoes, of course, the words of many church fathers and mothers down throughout the history of our church, who have recognized that a posture of silence in the presence of a holy God may be the best thing that we can do, the best posture that we can take. I see quite a bit of similarity with uh, the statement of Gandhi. Our culture loves to share their opinions, don't they? even sometimes at the expense of friendships. How many of you have been in a war of words on Facebook with people that you care about and you love or Instagram or whatever other social media you use, right? We love to share our opinions. And rather than listening and taking a posture of humility, we share our thoughts. In fact, we even get mad when people disagree with us, even though it's just our opinion. We hate to be misunderstood. True? So we write and we post and we post memes and we do all kinds of stuff to make ourselves and our perspective known. 
And I think as I was relating that to what we'll be studying today, I think that our culture and our proneness to speak, to share our opinions, to want to be heard and to not enjoy being misunderstood, it makes it hard for us to relate to Jesus when he's silent. Especially when Jesus is silent in the face of injustice. In most ways, that probably actually makes absolutely no sense to us. Why would Jesus be silent in the face of injustice? And I don't think that we can fully understand that until we unpack this story that we'll be looking at today. So we're in a series uh, called Defining Moments. As you may or may not know, welcome if you haven't been here uh, this far in our series. And today what we're going to be looking at is the defining moment of silence in Jesus' journey up to the cross. We've been pursuing our way through the last half of Matthew on the way to the cross. And as you know, uh, next week we will celebrate together Palm Sunday. And then the week after that, uh, during the week on Friday evening, you are all welcome to join us here in the evening for a Good Friday service. And then on Sunday morning, we will gather, we will eat breakfast together up in the community room. You're welcome to come to that, 9 a.m. And then at 10.30, our normal time, we will celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ right here. And we are on that journey together. We've been walking our way through Jesus' final days and weeks leading up to that. So let me give you the scene that's unfolding before us in the scriptures before I unpack them this morning. Jesus, today, where we find him, is on trial. Now, he's on trial several different times, right? He, he progresses through a series of trials, first before his own people, and then before the Romans, and then back before Herod, and then back before the Romans. And all of these trials, if you read through them, the last half of Matthew 26 and all the way on through 27, you could read about them in Luke. You could read about them in Mark and John as well. All the Gospels relate some of these trials. And sometimes they become so familiar to us that the reality is that we don't really feel the same sense of injustice anymore when we read them. But you have to capture. So, so Jesus has been taken in the middle of the night. We, we talked last week about the Garden of Gethsemane and the prayers that were being lifted up and, and the soldiers come and Jesus has been taken in the middle of the night. This is a supreme injustice according to the law of his own people. You are not to gather and hold a meeting in the middle of the night. So that in and of itself, they were already doing something unjust toward him. Jesus would have known that, of course. But just think about the rest of the injustices. Not just the impromptu illegal meeting, but uh, he was accused of trying to subvert Roman authority. He was accused of not paying taxes to Caesar. He was accused of trying to lead a rebellion. And, and the gospel writers want you to know very clearly, if you were to read back a few verses in Matthew before the ones we'll read today, Jesus looks right at the, the Roman centurions and said, what do you think I'm trying to do, lead a rebellion? To which, of course, we all rhetorically are supposed to know. The answer is no. But that's what he's being accused of. Not paying taxes to Caesar. He never said that. He's accused of leading a rebellion. He never said that that's what he was about to do. 
Not only were they doing all of that, they were twisting his words about destroying and rebuilding the temple in three days. All of these things are just kind of swirling about Jesus. And they haul him before a group known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was uh, a Jewish body that had been allowed to gather and form by the Roman authorities. It was kind of an intermediary sort of way that the Romans were trying to appease the Jews and, and that sort of thing. But it's a, it's a legal council. And so they're called in before the Sanhedrin. And this is, um, this is where we pick up our story. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus remained silent. He would then be taken from that trial and brought before Pilate, the governor. And then we have these couple of interactions. When He was accused by the chief priests and the elders. Now he's standing before Pilate. This is a few verses later in Matthew 27. He gave no answer. Two verses later it says, But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of Governor Pilate. And as I read these verses, I just started to question, what is Jesus trying to accomplish with his silence? You know, the interesting thing is that the writers of these gospel accounts don't really spend a lot of time unpacking why he was silent. We're left to kind of infer a little bit. What was the silence for? What was his silence meant to accomplish? It runs a little counter to our sensibilities, to our understanding of Here's some unjust things that are happening. How many of you have read other stories in these gospel accounts where they have accused him of certain things and he's put them in their place with a simple sentence or two? Imagine. This is all unjust. Imagine how easy it would have been for him to call them to account with a simple phrase or a word or a a reminder of their own law. Right? But it says that he remained silent in the face of these unjust accusations. And this morning, I just want to posture for you, posture, posit, whatever you want to call it, three different ideas for why I think Jesus remained silent before his accusers in this regard. I'm going to put them in the context of the title of the sermon, and that is the posture of silence. So the first one is the posture of power. I believe that this was a power posture, his silence representing power. In fact, most scholars would agree that this was an ultimate demonstration of his authority, of his power. He was the king. He was the son of God. And it would say, it does, the scripture does say that he goes on to acknowledge that much to the chief priests and then indirectly to Pilate. 
in fact, to answer any of the charges that were brought against him, to answer any of those charges would have been to dignify their authority in questioning him. So he doesn't do that. He was in control. Silence representing his power and his control. His silence before his accusers was dignified. It was appropriate. It was authoritative. Peter would write about him in his letter and say this, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's a posture of power. Why was Jesus silent? Because he was in control and he knew what had to happen. He was putting his trust in God. He knew that he could change the outcome with his words. But he's already made the decision to follow through. And earlier, when we talked about his interaction with Peter, he reminded Peter, you know, don't let anybody know that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, right? He, he said, hold on to that thought because my time had not yet come. Well, now the author to Matthew is saying, your time has come, right? And Jesus recognizes my time has come and I'm in complete control here. So there is a power posture. Now I want you to just stop for a second right there and think how excruciating it must have been to hold his tongue. Just imagine, he knows how unjustly he's being treated. Just imagine in your own life how hard it is to be unjustly accused. Does anybody have any experience with that? You think of a time in your life when you've had to hold your tongue in some way, shape, or form because to say something would have maybe put you in the wrong place, to say nothing, but it's just kind of like you're helpless in that moment. My particular blood pressure rises significantly when I find myself in those situations. It reminded me of a story in my own life several, several years ago. My wife and I were uh, newly married. We were living just down a few blocks from here in an apartment complex known as Chatham Gardens. And um, I was trying to remember all the details. I think I've got most of them right. <laughs> I was coming home late at night. It was probably the middle of winter, and I think it was January sometime. Um, I was coming home later in the evening from a meeting or something along those lines, and I noticed um, that there was this young boy. He was probably 12, 14 years old, whatever. He was just kind of lingering outside of our apartment. It wasn't because it was our apartment, but he was just there, okay? So he's 12 or 14 years old. Now, mind you, the temperature is like 8 degrees. It's freezing cold, and he's dressed not much warmer than I would be in this coat. So he's wandering around. I have no idea. I've never seen him before. I don't know who he is. I greet him, assuming that maybe he's waiting for somebody from one of the apartments or that sort of thing. I go up, and I'm, and I'm peeking out the window, and I'm like, he's, he's not leaving. He's not going anywhere. So I'm talking to Julia. I'm like, what do we do? Like, I don't want to. It's freezing out there. What do we do? So we talked about it for a couple minutes, and I went down, and I engaged him. I'm like, what are you doing? Why What's going on? Who are you? Why are you here? You know, you got somebody coming for you. And he was just sort of like 
silent. He just didn't, he didn't, he just mumbled a few things. He didn't tell me why he was there. He didn't tell me what was going on. Didn't tell me anything. I'm like, okay, like, do you want to come upstairs? Because it's cold out here and I don't want to stand out here and talk with you. Like, let's go upstairs and we'll talk about this and try to figure it out. So long story short, he comes upstairs and we try to coax some things out of him, try to figure out what's going on and Clearly, there's something going on, right? He's, he's normal. Like, there wasn't any mental impairment in that sort of a sense. He was normal in that sense, but, but he wasn't um, responsive. So, without anything else to do, we were like, it was really late. So, we decided to let him stay overnight with us, and we'll figure out where to take him in the morning, because we didn't know really what else to do. So, we made up a bed for him, and he stayed overnight, and um, the next day... We fed him breakfast and finally figured out, like, where he went to school. That was basically what he could give us. He went to Freddie Thomas School, and so I drove him over to Freddie Thomas. We, I explained the situation. We met with one of the guidance counselors there, and basically that was about it. I really don't know whatever happened to him, but here's what happened. I started getting some calls from the school, and then eventually from his mother, and because I had left my phone number, like, I'll help, whatever I can do. But the calls came in as being kind of accusatory. Like, what was going on? What was that about? What did you do? Why did you take him in? You can imagine how that made me feel. I thought I was doing a good thing, helping this young man from out of the cold and giving him a place overnight and taking him to the school the next day. Maybe I should have called 911. I don't know. It was just in the moment. I didn't really think about all of that. We were just trying to help. And I was being, it wasn't that I was being accused, but it was kind of in that tone, you know, the questioning. And I felt really uncomfortable. Like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say about me? What's he going to say? He could say anything. And you all know we live in a society where it's just the mere accusation sometimes that tarnishes and changes everything. Sometimes it doesn't even resemble truth. You can just say something about somebody and their reputation's done. I was kind of worried about that. So days went by and nothing happened and honestly to this day nothing's ever happened. I don't know what happened to him. Never got a follow-up call. I don't know. But in that moment I was incredibly uncomfortable. I was inc- I just felt wrongly accused. I what, why were my motives even being questioned? You don't know me. Like, I just felt awful. And everything in me wanted to explain myself. Everything in me wanted to, to talk to the mom or to talk to the school or whatever. And, but they weren't asking me for anything. I just had to, I was at the mercy of whatever he said and whatever they thought. And that's what this particular moment kind of reminded me of. Just thinking what Jesus must have been feeling to be standing there knowing that to say anything would have changed the whole equation and knowing that he had to stand there to take the abuse and the injustice and all of that sort of stuff, to just be standing there receiving all of that. How awful that must have felt. Uncomfortable. But he said nothing to those charges. He said nothing. Certainly, 
It was a powerless moment for him. He was completely innocent. If it were me, I might have lashed out. I might have said something. I might even just a little quick snide comment, you know, just to put them in their place, even if it, if it wasn't going to change the whole equation, but just to say something because I just needed to say something. That would have been me. But Jesus, he held his tongue, and I believe that that was a position, a posture of power. But there's a second posture. And I believe this posture is the prophetic posture. You know, his silence, he he wasn't completely silent. He was just silent in the face of all the unjust charges. Because he did go on to acknowledge a couple of things about what they were saying about him. Are you the king of the Jews? He says, you say it is so. He's not acknowledging it. He's not denying it. He's making them a witness to it. Which is kind of an ingenious way to go about it because... Now they become witnesses to who he is. You say it is so. And before the chief priests, he would go on and quote a verse from Daniel chapter 7. You see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he he quotes this verse. It's meant to make a profound statement that I am who you say I am. I am that person in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, it would say this. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He knew who he was. The writers of Matthew know who he was. And they're definitely trying to make the point that this is a prophetic posture. He knew what he had to do. I think we've spoken in previous weeks about Jesus as the suffering servant. His fate was already sealed. He was going to reverse the curse as we talked about last week, the curse of the Garden of Eden. And the high priest says to him, and we've already read this in verse 63, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And this is the verse that Jesus quotes, verse 64 of 26. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. If Jesus had responded to these trumped-up accusations, it would have taken away from the power of the prophetic moment that he lived in. It was definitely a revelation. I am the Chosen One. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am here fulfilling this prophecy. This was truly a prophetic posture of silence. And then there's a third posture. This is the purifying posture. Jesus had to die for our sins. He knew he was the sacrifice for our sins. From the earliest part of John's gospel, we read this. John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul would write about him in 1 Corinthians 5.7 and say this, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What is Passover? You guys remember Passover? This is the, the story of when Israel was in Egypt 
And God wants to make and show a sign to Pharaoh. And he says, I'm going to allow the death angel to kill all the firstborn. But if you just put some of the lamb's blood over the doorpost, when the angel passes by, they'll pass right by your house. You won't experience the same things that those who don't have it will. So that's Passover. This salvation moment. It required blood. It required blood for the atonement of our sinfulness, of our guilt. That's what he's referring to here. Christ has become our Passover lamb. Jesus has already declared to his disciples at a meal just a few hours before all of this that I am the new Passover lamb. My body is going to be given for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. I become the new symbolic Passover lamb for all of humanity to take away all of man's sinfulness. I am the purification for your sinfulness. And what we don't read, you have to study this, is that Jesus has been arrested, put on trial, and now is about to be executed on the day of Passover. Unwittingly, The individuals that are trying to kill him are killing him in full accordance with the law for him to become the new Passover lamb. It's a powerful, powerful moment. Hillsong sings a song, and we're going to sing it in just a few minutes, called Man of Sorrows. And in the song, as we will sing in just a few minutes, you'll hear these words. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed, The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid, silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned. Bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. It's a powerful, powerful song that explains that Jesus was the innocent Passover lamb. Jeffrey Cohen is a a Jewish believer. He's a believer in the Messiah And he teaches about the Passover. And he tells this story about how uh, families, uh, Jewish families who believe in in this, uh, how they recognize Passover. He tells this story. He says, each year, a one-year-old little lamb would have to live with a Jewish family. I think I have a picture. There's one. Would have to live with a Jewish family in their home for at least four days before being sacrificed for that household. The children, of course, would would get close to this little lamb without blemish or defect. And in effect, it becomes part of the family for a few days. And once the children are attached to this sweet little creature, the father has to explain to them that the little lamb has to be killed for them. The horror and the apparent brutality of this innocent lamb being sacrificed would certainly break the heart of the children. But the father would explain how according to the law of Moses, there has to be an innocent blood sacrifice to atone for the guilty. It would break his little heart, the little heart of the children, but would prepare the nation ultimately for the innocent, spotless Lamb of God who would come and die for the sins of his people and for the world in Passover. We read in Revelation, you've already heard it, in the song that we sung, sang, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. 
Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In verse 12 it says this, In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Over in Revelation 13, it would say this, All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Jesus was the Passover Lamb. His silence was reflecting a posture of purification for the sinfulness of humanity. And I submit to you today that that is why Jesus remained silent before his accusers. The prophetic and purifying power of Jesus was on full display in his silence. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. They're going to lead us in that song, Man of Sorrows. Some of you will maybe recognize it. This posture of silence, it runs counter to our culture. But I want us to reflect and be grateful today because of his silence. Because of his silence, we are able to be fully restored. We're able to be connected to God. It was his choice for our good, and one that we owe him a debt of gratitude for. And in a few minutes, we're going to have an opportunity to do just that as we partake in communion again today. We have an opportunity to lay down all of those things that would separate us from God, to purify our hearts, to purify our minds, to allow the blood of Jesus Christ to renew us once again. And that is the power of inherent in the sacrifice that he made. So as you reflect and sing the words that we'll sing now, prepare your hearts for the receiving of communion.